Alrighty, you can turn over in your Bible to the Gospel of John. Last week we started uh, this message entitled, Jesus our All-Sufficient Savior. And so today we want to conclude this up to verses 51, uh, the end of chapter 1. And uh, we've been looking at this text uh, just for two weeks now, but it's, it's been uh, a blessed uh, time to spend in God's Word. And so I just want to read the, the section of Scripture for us out of John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. And if you would be honored to stand in honor of God's Word, I'd appreciate that. It reads, John 1.35, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, we, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus, who, who followed, uh, and, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46 Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, because I said this, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated last week, we talked about the importance of preaching Christ and Christ alone and we saw that in in second or in first Corinthians chapter two verses four and uh, one one and four Paul writes this and when I came to you I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom and then he says in verse four and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's talking about the cross. This is what John the Baptist was talking about when he said, Behold, 
What? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, when we want people to come to Christ, we need to be sure that we're living for Christ, but people are not going to get saved just by your testimony. They're going to get saved by hearing of Christ. They're going to be, they have to hear those words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. And so I mentioned last week, there's four cases here of individuals who came to Christ. And we're going to look at each one today. And each one of these cases, we want to ask the question, what was it that brought them to Christ? And the first case here, basically, it was the conviction you could say it was the conviction of John the Baptist in the case of Andrew and John in verses 35 to 39. They were committed to the teaching of John the Baptist. The Bible calls them disciples of John the Baptist. That word disciple basically, mathetas in the original Greek, it means follower, learner. You're committing your life to following someone. They were committed to the teaching of John the Baptist. That means they went down to the Jordan River. That means that they were baptized as a baptism of repentance, indicating that they had gotten right with the Lord. They had confessed their sin. And now Andrew and the writer of this book, John, are disciples of John the Baptist. But they were not only just committed to his teaching, but they were challenged by his message about Christ. It says there, his message was, Behold the Lamb of God. The Bible says there in verse 36 that, as Jesus walked in, that was how he was addressed. It says the very next day, as the day previous, he said it again. Behold the Lamb of God. And they heard that, and what did they do? Did they look to John and say, what do we do? No, they, it says they immediately followed Christ. They immediately followed Christ. They were challenged by John's message about who Jesus was. See, John called people not to follow him. It wasn't important that he had a bunch of disciples, but he pointed people to Christ. That was his role. That's the impact that John the Baptist had on people. He caused people to come to Christ. That's so important. And thirdly here, they were convinced to follow Jesus, and they learned more about him. They wanted to learn more about Christ. Look at what it says in verse uh, 37 to 39. It says here, The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, and, and following him, and he said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, teacher, where are you staying? That was interesting to me that they would ask that question. They were challenged by by Christ. Why are you following me? What are you after? If someone was following us, we would turn around and we would say, how come you're following me? That's basically what Jesus is doing. And they ask him that question, where are you staying? That tells you a lot. That tells you a lot about these two disciples. They didn't say to him, well, hey, you know what, Jesus, we need a job. Can we work for you? Or you know what, we're a little hungry. Could you Give us a sandwich? They didn't say any of that. Now, those things are good. They're important. I don't know why you're following Christ here today, but you might want to ask yourself that question. But the Bible teaches us they wanted to stay with him. They wanted to learn 
more about him. See, what's the, what should be the central message of any church? Should it be human need? That's what it's become. You've got to feed the hungry. You've got to help the homeless. You've got to do all these things, all these human needs. That's not the central purpose of the church. Now, it's nice we can do those things, but that should not be the central message of the church, human need. The central message of the church is what? Jesus Christ and him crucified and him risen. The world has gone crazy over the idea of the needs of humans today. If Jesus can just do something for me, then I'll follow him. It's filled with a sense of, you know what, felt needs. What can Jesus do for me? Then I'll consider your Savior. You have to understand, my friends, he is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And without him, guess what? You will be in hell for all of eternity. Think again. Who is he? Why did they follow him? They followed him because of the conviction of John the Baptist, who who told them, you know what? There's one coming after me. There's one who's preferred before me. He was before me, John the Baptist told them. He was the one I saw the Spirit of God descending on like a dove and remaining on him. This is the Son of God. You follow him. Don't you dare follow me. I'm just a voice what? Crying in the wilderness, John said. Preparing the way of the Lord. And so these two men, Andrew and John, were following John the Baptist. They knew immediately when he pointed to Jesus and pointed him out and said, there's the Lamb of God. They knew without a doubt that's who they were to follow. And they wanted to stay where, find out where he was staying. I ask you a simple question. Where was he staying? You can read the text all day long. It does not tell us in the text that we're reading. It doesn't tell us. But you know what? The Bible does. The Bible tells us. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus tells everyone where he's staying. He said... Foxes have holes, and what birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, God incarnate, has nowhere to lay his head. Now think, with the, with the disciples here, they're down in the Jordanian Valley. This is 1,300 feet below sea level. If you've ever been there, it's very, very hot. It's arid now, Jericho was close by, but there's no indication in the Bible that there were any people there that Jesus knows. He's down there with the rest of the crowds hunting for the shade of a tree out in the hot sun. Made a little hut or something out of some branches. We don't know, but it would have been almost impossible just to stand there in the sun because it's so arid, it's so hot. But when Jesus said to them, come and see, they were surprised. What did they think? Did they think maybe they'd go to some palace in Jericho that he's already got laid out and prepared for them? And I mean, after all, he is the Son of God. No. Jesus said, You come and see, and I'll show you where I'm staying. See, when you follow Jesus Christ, you say, Well, you know, I hope he makes me successful. 
Remember, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, if it's Jesus you want, that's fine. But if it's just what Jesus does for you, you might want to question your motivation. You have to ask yourself, which is it? See, too many people today are interested in following Jesus Christ to have their felt needs met. That's the wrong, wrong motivation to follow Christ. And so here the disciples are asking, where are you staying? We want to stay with you, Jesus. And Jesus says, come and see. By the way, Bob Bennett wrote a beautiful song back in the early 80s called Come and See. I encourage you to look it up. We don't see this in the English language, but that phrase, come and see, is really a, a, a Jewish colloquialism that, that really is used by the, the rabbis. And it, it, it kind of has the idea of whenever there's a difficult problem that somebody has difficulty in understanding or explaining, and the rabbi knows that he needs more time to explain it, the quick answer is always, come and see. Come and see. I don't have the answer right now, but we can sit down, have a cup of tea and talk about this. We can find the answer. Let's sit down and get into it. That's what he's saying. Come and see. I mean, how gracious is it of our Lord that he would turn to them and say, personally, come and see. I'd love to have you where I'm staying, Jesus is saying. It isn't much. I don't have a whole lot. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. But you know what? What you'll receive is wonderful. It'll be well worth your while to come and see. And it says, and they stayed with him there that day. Verse 39, look at verse 39. It says that it was about the 10th hour. Now a Jewish day begins at, you can say, 6 o'clock sundown approximately. And it begins in the evening and it goes to the following evening. That's how the Jewish calendar works the day the time periods is it the 10th hour of the day jewish time which would make it around 4 p.m i've read a lot of commentaries that say yeah that's what time it was but i would say i don't think it is it's 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 10 o'clock but it's certainly not 10 o'clock at night it's probably 10 a.m in the morning and they stayed with him the whole day. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you look at the history of the writing of the Gospel of John, it was written much later than any of the other uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And when John wrote this Gospel, he wrote to the whole world, but he wrote to primarily a Gentile world in the Roman world with the gospel and power and clarity and simplicity so could people could understand the way to have forgiveness of their sins through Christ. And this gospel is probably written around 90 to 95 A.D. In, in Roman time, which is different than Jewish time, was already very well established. I believe he used Roman time, not Jewish time. And let me give you an indication of that. Turn over to John Chapter 20, John 20, verse 19. This deals with the resurrection of Christ. 20, 19. 
It says, on, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. The first part of that verse, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. See, this has to be Roman time. You say, well, why is that? If it was Jewish time, it would have been the second day of the week because it would have already been in the evening, and that's when the next day starts in Judaism. So it's, it's Roman time because he says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So John may have been using Roman time, I don't want to be dogmatic on that, throughout his whole gospel. Now go back to chapter 1. The point is this, is they spent the entire day with the Lord. Wouldn't it be wonderful just to sit with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and get to know him, and, and to talk with him, and to hear him tell you about himself? Mary, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in that home, Jesus said she's chosen the good part. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus to learn everything she could about him. And Jesus says, you know what? You're doing the best part here. Sometimes in life we just need to stop. And we need to understand that when we follow Christ, we're not following a church. We're not following a religion. We're not following somebody who led us to the Lord. Who is it that we follow? We follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's time we sit down at his feet and learn from him. When are we ever going to learn that? You know, you may have known the Lord many, many years sitting here this morning. But are you doing that on a regular basis? Are you still sitting with Christ? Are you learning from him? What is it to follow Jesus? It is simply to follow Jesus. Not an individual, not a church, not a belief system. It's to follow Christ, to learn about him. That's what that word disciple means. It means learner or follower. I ask you this morning, are you learning about Christ? Are you sitting here this morning, oh, I know everything there is to know about Christ. How could you ever know everything there is about Christ? No, it's impossible. He's God. Christianity is about Jesus, not just as a system, not just as a lifestyle, not just as a way of doing things, but what? Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the first case. The case of Andrew and John. And if you're wondering, why isn't John mentioned? John never mentions himself in his gospel by name. Secondly, the second case is the case of Simon Peter. So in the first case, it was the conviction of John the Baptist. Here with Simon Peter, it was the claim of his brother Andrew. Look at verses 40 to 42 of John chapter 1. Don't you just love Simon Peter? I love this guy. He just, you know, have you ever met a man in the Bible who almost every other verse he's putting his foot in his mouth? He's just one of those guys that, that never shuts up. He's like a motor mouth. He's just constantly talking. He would have been a good salesman, I think. He's always talking. He's a natural born leader, you would say. In one passage we, we see later in the, the Gospel of John, he literally 
to give you a little bit about who, who Peter was, he was a fisherman, but he literally, it says, he literally pulls in a net of fishes under the ancient system of fishing, how they used to fish back in his time. It had, the net had 153 fish in it. And it says he pulled it in all by himself. So this guy was pretty well built. Any modern day fisherman would say, there's no way anybody could do that. That would be impossible. Guys around the Sea of Galilee, they knew how they fished in the ancient time. And they say, this guy had to be one buff dude to be able to do that. That's why they call him the, the, the big fisherman. Just to haul it in. He was an incredible hulk of a man, no, no, no doubt. But he was certainly a loudmouth, that's for sure. He certainly didn't know how to necessarily monitor what he was saying well what was it that brought peter to jesus you know what it was it was the claim of his brother andrew andrew said that we have found the messiah well a couple things here first of all andrew was committed to the preaching of john the baptist as well look at verse 40 one of the two who heard john speak and then followed jesus was andrew simon peter's brother so he was also a disciple of John, but when John said, hey, there's the Lamb of God, that's exactly where he went. So he was committed to the preaching of John the Baptist too. And then it says that he was also concerned about his brother. It says that he found first his own brother, Simon. His own brother. Now you could say this in a couple different ways. How did you read that? You could say, well, he found him first before doing anything else. He found him. It might mean that. Like it's a priority issue. He first, before doing anything else, ran and found his, his brother. Or you could read it, he found first before finding others. You could also read it that way. He first found Peter. Then he might have gone and found some others. Or thirdly, you could say, or did he, 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 he mean that he, he was the first among all the apostles to find his brother? There are several sets of brothers here among the apostles. Maybe he was the first one to find, go and get his brother. I think it's the first one that he did it first. He was concerned about his brother. And what an example Andrew is. We don't know a whole lot about this man, Andrew, but can you imagine being Peter's brother? <laughs> I mean, he must have had to put up a lot of stuff. I mean, he, he didn't stand a chance, even in the shadow of Peter. Everywhere they went, they probably asked Peter, hey, who's that, that with you, you know? And before Andrew could say anything, that's my brother, that's my brother, Andrew. <laughs> it's just probably that way. Just his personality. I have, a, I have a feeling that when Andrew found the Messiah, he knew, if I can just let Peter know that Jesus is the Messiah, everybody's going to know because Peter's got a loud mouth. He's just not the kind of guy to keep secrets. Get Peter to believe this, and we would really get this whole area evangelized for the Lord. Let's get Peter saved. Thank God for every Andrew, right, that brings Peters to Christ. <laughs> Think about that. I read the illustration last week of, 
of uh, the man who led uh, D.L. Moody, Mr. Kimball, to Christ. I mean, thank God for these Andrews of the world who, who lead the Peters and the Moody's and the Spurgeons to Christ. We may not hear about them very much. They may not be as well known as those who come to Christ and have incredible ministries, but we should thank God for them. We see other things about Andrew here. Uh, he, he finds, in, in chapter 6, he finds the little, little boy with his lunch, and he brings him to Jesus too, in John 6. And then in chapter 12, uh, there's some Greeks that want to meet Jesus, and Andrew brings, brings them to Jesus. He's always bringing people to Jesus. We thank, thank God for the Andrews of the world. So he was committed to the preaching of John the Baptist. He was concerned about his brother. And then also, Andrew was, was certain about the identity of Christ. Look at what it says in verse 41. He found uh, first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ we have found the Messiah, he says. Not, hey, we think we found him. <laughs> no, he is absolutely certain that he found the Messiah. And he shares that with his brother. And then the last thing there under this is Peter was confronted with the knowledge and calling of Jesus Christ. Verse 42 it says, he brought him to Jesus. I love this verse. Jesus looked at him. He looked at him. When you stop and think about that, one day we will look into the eyes of Christ. But here is Peter, and he comes to Christ, and it just says Jesus looked at him. It doesn't say that of any other person. Why is that in the Bible? Why is that listed here about Peter, that Jesus looked at him? To have the Son of, of God, the Savior of the world, the King of Israel, the Messiah, Himself look directly into your eyes. I can't imagine what that would be like. But it says that Jesus looked at Him. Sometimes you see phrases in the Bible like that that are kind of rare. And you want to know, well, why is this here? Why is the Spirit of God putting this here for our, our attention? I believe it's because... Over three years later, Peter is going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. you remember this story? We hear a lot about it at, around Easter time, around Passion Week. And during that time, it says that Jesus looked at him right after he denied him. He caught his gaze. And the Bible says that he went out and wept bitterly. He was convicted by a mere look of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Peter's the kind of guy, he was the kind of guy you just got to kind of stare at for a moment. You know, sometimes when I was teaching younger kids in Sunday school or even young, young youth, teenagers, and they're being a little ruckus in your study, all you got to do is stop and stare at them. If you stare long enough, they shut up. They realize. See, this is what, what, what the gaze of Christ must have been like. And in that gaze, Jesus was communicating to Peter. 
You know what, pal? I know all about you. I know everything that makes you tick. Because I am God. It says, Jesus looked at him, and what did he say? You are Simon, the son of John. Whoa, how did he know that? Andrew, did you tell him this? How did he know that? Jesus is just looking at him going, I know all about you, Peter. And because of that, you know what? We're going to do a little alteration of your name. (laughs) You thought you're going to be the big leader of this group here. You're a natural born leader. You're boisterous and loud. You know what? We're going to change your name. And now you're going to be called Cephas. Which means Peter. We're going to call you Cephas in Aramaic. Petros in Greek. Peter did not want to be called a little stone that you can toss wherever you want. That's what Jesus was doing. That's the word, little stone. You think you're all that, Peter? You know what? I'm going to rename you. You're a little stone, and I can throw you wherever I want. You're going to do exactly what I tell you to do. I mean, can you imagine Peter coming with his brother to Christ and standing there before the Lord and he said, okay, we're going to rename you Little Stone. Peter's probably going, hey, wait a minute. This this doesn't make any sense. I mean, I'm a big big buff of a guy here. What's going on? No, Peter, that's you. I'm just going to throw you around like I could a little stone. And you remember back in Matthew 16, he said, thou art Peter, Little Stone. But upon this rock, I will build my church. The Lord said that. Now we know that those of us who've been raised in the Catholic Church, they have a tradition that says, oh, Peter was the first pope, and that's what they base it on. Jesus said that he would build his church on Peter. No, he didn't say that. That's not what the text says in Matthew. Matter of fact, it says just the opposite. He says, Peter, you are a little stone, but upon this rock, upon Myself, I will build my church. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No other foundation can be laid by man other than that which is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the rock, not Peter. Peter, you're just a little stone. I can toss you around whenever I want to. And you know what, Peter? I'm going to use you to open up the door to but I'm going to build my church on myself. I'm the foundation. I'm the rock the Lord was communicating. Look over at Luke chapter 5. I love this story. Luke chapter 5. Peter's so relatable. I mean, just some of the things he says and he does. He's a great guy, but he had a lot of problems. He had a lot of issues. I'm so glad the Bible doesn't tell us that you know, Jesus chose 12 of the sweetest boys that ever lived. He didn't say that, right? Oh, these were fine gentlemen, always kind to animals and helped the elderly. Now, the Bible tells us the truth about who these guys were. And they were anything but sweet. In Luke chapter 5, 
Verse 1, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesenaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, oh, here we go, which was Simon's. (laughs) Couldn't you imagine Peter with his personality? Here's Jesus with all these people. He's teaching these people. And Jesus, hey, I need a boat. Oh, there's a guy. He's got a boat. I'm going to get in into Simon's boat. Can't you just imagine Peter saying, hey, look who's in my boat. <laughs> the Lamb of God. The Son of God. He, he, you know, check this out, guys. He's not in your boat. He's in my boat. It says he asked him, the Lord asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the, the boat. That kind of makes sense because the acoustics of being out on a lake and people are up on a hill, it would amplify his voice. And there were so many people, he needed that apparently. Just naturally, so it, it provided a good forum for his teaching. But when he was done, it says when he had finished speaking, don't miss this, he said to Simon, He didn't say it to anybody else. He spoke to Simon. Why? I think because he knew Simon's ego. I think he knew what kind of man Peter was. And he needed to teach Simon a lesson. He didn't say it to anybody else. He just said to Simon. And look at what he says. He says, put out into the deep. Now that I'm done talking, let's go fishing, Peter. Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, if you know anything about fishing, especially in the Sea of Galilee, you would know immediately that's the stupidest idea that you would ever do because the fish tend to gravitate toward the shoreline. You don't go out in the middle of the lake and put down your nets. That's just a silly thing. They would laugh at you if you did that. All the good catches are along the shore. But Jesus says, no, Peter, I want to go out in the middle. And remember, this is what Peter does for a living. Look at what his response is in verse 5. And Simon said, Master, (laughs) I don't think you understand. We toiled all night, and we caught nothing. All night. But, you know what? (laughs) At your word, Lord, this isn't a good idea, is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, I'm going to prevent a little embarrassment here for you, Lord. Don't do this. But if you want to, I mean, you're, you're God, you're the Messiah, you're the one that's in control here, not me. Even though I know better, we'll go along with this little game you're playing. I'll let down the nets. Now you get the impact of what's going on here in the text. Look at verse 6. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. A large number of fish to the point where their nets were breaking. That's not good for a fisherman. Think about it. Your your nets are full of fish and they start to break. And you're not near the shore. Where are you at? You're in the middle of the sea. So it's kind of a a, a different situation. And so what they do, they called over their partners, verse 7, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they were filling both the boats. And then it's just God's sense of humor. What happens to the boats? They begin to sink. 
It's like, wow, these guys can't catch a break. But you know what? Peter knows exactly what the Lord is doing here. Because he knows what's going on. And look at what his response is in verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, what did he do? I'm the greatest fisherman in the world. Look at these two full boats of fish. No, he didn't do that. He didn't say that. It says he fell down on his, on his knees. He fell down at Jesus' knees. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's he saying? You nailed me, Lord. You nailed me. I'm probably one of the best fishermen here. And you just broke one of the cardinal rules of fishing, going out in the middle of the lake, and yet <laughs> I doubted you, and here's what I got for it. I was trying to spare you embarrassment. But guess what? I feel rather embarrassed now because I question this. And then it says in verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch, because it wasn't normal, it was supernatural, that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Look at this, who were partners with Simon. Remember I said Simon Peter is kind of a boisterous guy, just a natural born leader. Very, If he's in the room, you knew it. Isn't it the, the sense of humor God has that he has Simon call as his partners these two men, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They're known, their, their nickname is the, thuns, the sons of thunder. These were alike, just like Peter. They were always out there telling God, you know what, just, if anybody opposes us, just burn them up, God. I don't have time to deal with these these apostate people, just wipe them out. Let fire come down from heaven and wipe them out. Let's get on with the work. That's the kind of men they were. I mean, what, isn't it interesting that of all the two men that, that would be partners with Peter, it was them. And it says, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left their career, they left their family, they left everything. Go back to John 1. See, some of us need to understand priorities in life. Sometimes our careers get in the way of God's purpose, of God's plan. Sometimes our own goals in life get in the way. Maybe we want to be successful or do something worthwhile. We need to forsake all those desires and lay them at the feet of Christ and be able to say, not my will, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I want to do your work in this world, Lord, because I know that's the only work that's going to last. See, in the case of Simon Peter, it was the claim of his brother. The third case here brings your attention to this guy some people call Mr. Nobody. One commentator actually called him stupid. Meaning he can't seem to put things together. One other commentator said, oh, oh you know, Philip, he was just, a, just an ordinary guy. Nothing here to see. One wonders why the Lord ever even chose him. But you know what? The Bible says that God chooses the ordinary people of this world, and he does extraordinary things through them. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 
1, verse 26. Just listen. You can turn there if you want, but just listen. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. I love this, this, these verses. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why did God choose these lowly individuals? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast what? In the Lord. Philip, it's interesting, this is the only one of the followers of Christ that it says that Jesus found him. <laughs> that Jesus found him, verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip. And he said to him, you follow me. And it tells us where Philip was from, Beth- Bethsaida. That's the same place that Andrew and Peter were from. The word itself, Bethsaida, means house of fishing. It was a fishing port on the northern side of Galilee where the waters uh, come off of Mount Hermon and flow into the Sea of Galilee. That's where Bethsaida is, was. And it means house of fishing. It was a fishing port. But we don't know much about Philip. But we know a couple things. Turn over to John 6. John 6. The next time we read about Philip is when, he, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000 men and women and children the bread. And it says in verse, John 6, verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, he's teaching and all these people are pressing in on him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, what's interesting is, look at, before we even look at verse 6, look at verse 7. Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each, each of them to get a little. In other words, what did Philip say? Lord, I know what you're saying, but it ain't going to happen. There is no way we could ever, ever, ever feed this many people. Some people say, oh, that's because Philip was the accountant of the group. No, I don't believe that. I think he just had common sense. And he looked at the situation and he said, there's no way. Have you ever been in life where the situation, you find yourself in a situation and you go, this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible. There's no way this will ever happen. And yet God somehow works things out. It's amazing. Whether it's in a relationship, I've seen people in their marriage say, this is impossible. There's no way we could ever continue. And the Lord does a miracle and Before you know it, they both know the Lord and they're living for the Lord and they're telling other people, look at the miracle that God did in our relationship. How would you like to be known as the the guy that told Jesus he can't do this? (laughs) I mean, that's what he's known as. He actually told the Lord. One of the apostles here being known in the Bible, this is a story. This, this, yeah, the Lord asked me and I said, nope, can't do it. Impossible. 
That's what you're known for throughout all of history. It says in there that, that Jesus said this just to test him. Verse 6, and he said this to test him, for he knew himself, for he himself knew what he would do. He wasn't asking for Philip's help. He is God. He doesn't need anyone's help. That's a good lesson in and of itself for us. But we're not done with him yet. Turn over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 of John. Because Philip and Andrew... I don't know if you knew this, but they're the only apostles with Greek names, Philip and Andrew. And so, if they were in a certain town and they were um, Greek people who wanted to get to know more about Christ, it made sense that they would come to Philip and Andrew because they, they had Greek names. The only two apostles with Greek names. Verse 21, John 12, 21. It says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these, these Greeks, came to Philip. They went right to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now there are commentators that beat Philip over the head because of what about, what's about going to happen here. They say, man, this guy is just a loser. He's a nobody. I mean, he couldn't get the bread. Now he's, he can't even help these Greek guys. He's got to run and get his brother. He always needs help. Doesn't know how to buy bread. Man, what's going on here? Verse, or chapter 14. Um, you know, he, that's how they, they comment on it. He says he went and he told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So they, they basically say, this poor guy can't do anything right. And in chapter 14, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he'd been, Philip had been with Jesus three years now, okay, quite a while. And Jesus tells him there that, you know what, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Verse 8 of chapter 14, here's what Philip says. He gets his opportunity. Philip said to him, Lord, Show us the Father, and it is enough for you, enough for us. In other words, just do something fancy here so we can see the Father, and, and we'll, we'll believe. <laughs> and Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long? How long have I been with you? We've been together for three years, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Philip is kind of interesting. We don't know about him. We just know that every time he's brought up, it's not a, necessarily a great situation. It means it doesn't make him look great. But back to John 1, that day when, when Jesus, remember, he's the only one that Jesus found. All the other ones came to Christ Hey, we found the Messiah. But Jesus sought out Philip. And he said to Philip, follow me. And guess what? Philip was following him. Maybe he didn't have a whole lot upstairs, but he was following Christ. I, it's hard to make, know what to make of Philip. 
I don't know whether he's ordinary or not, but I think he's in there, he's in the mix of this, because I think John wants to show us, the Holy Spirit wants to show us, that you know what, God loves all people. You don't have to be a man of status before God will love you, or a woman of status. God put that in the Bible, I think, to show us that the Lord Jesus gave individual attention to somebody that a lot of people didn't think much about. (laughs) Oh yeah, Philip. Nobody went and got him. He probably wouldn't understand anyway. We don't need to go get him and tell him we found the Messiah. But guess what? Jesus went and got him. Pretty interesting. Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. Maybe there's some here this morning, right now. Maybe nobody's really approached you. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus would, if he was here. Physically, he would walk up to you and say, hey. He'd walk right up to you. Maybe nobody cares about you. You sense that. Maybe you're not important. You're not a person of significance. Maybe you can't even put your thoughts clearly together. No one understands. But you know what? Maybe you're just ordinary. Like most of us. And Jesus wants you to know that, you know what? I'll I'll come to you. And I'll ask you to follow me. I'm thankful that there's a Philip among all these apostles. We don't read much about him in the Bible. But what we do read is very insightful. The last group here is the case of Nathaniel. Nathaniel, verses 45 to 51. These are all the men who came to Christ in one way or another. And here it was the character of Jesus that really spoke to Nathaniel's heart. In the case of Andrew and John, it was the conviction of John the Baptist. In the case of Simon the Peter, it was, it was the claim of his brother Andrew. In the case of Philip, it was the challenge of Jesus himself. You follow me. Well, here, in the case of Nathaniel, it was the character of Jesus. It was the character of Jesus. Nathaniel is a very interesting case. Some people say that his real name is Bartholomew. In the list of the twelve apostles, there's no Nathaniel. But it does mention sets of brothers. And it lists Philip and Bartholomew. Now Bartholomew is not a real name. Bar means son of. Son of Thome, basically. Bartholomew, and they believe his real name is Nathaniel, that they're one and the same. We don't know. That's just what some people conclude. Because they think that Nathaniel here is supposed to be one of the apostles. Now, you can believe that if you want. It could be. But I don't think that's John's point. I think John's trying to show us that all kinds of different people picked out of different walks of life Christ brought to himself. In other words, you don't have to be at a certain standard in life before Jesus will give you attention. And Nathaniel needs to be in here. Why? Because he is the most religious of the bunch that we talked about. First of all, he was skeptical of of Philip's claim. Look at what he says. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. 
That suggests that somehow they were studying the Old Testament. They had been seeking the one who is the Messiah. And, you know, he came and got him and said, hey, you know that Bible study we've been having in the Old Testament? I think we found the guy. We found the guy. The one of Moses and all the prophets. Who is he? He's Jesus of Nazareth. Look at what Nathaniel says, verse 46. What? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, there are those words again, come and see. Just come and see. I can't even explain it. Come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why did he say that? Because Nazareth was a hideout for robbers. It was, it was filled with a den of thieves and murderers and all that. In John 21, 2, it says, And Nathanael came from Cana of Galilee. If you've ever been to Israel, as you come out of the, the valley of Armageddon, you go up to the high slopes <clears throat> of Galilee there, and you run into Nazareth, and just down the road is Cana. And these are just shabby little, crummy little villages. There's nothing to them. And this guy's going to come out of Jerusalem, right? No, he out of Nazareth. You gotta be kidding me. He was skeptical. Very skeptical. He was skeptical of Philip's claim. Secondly, he was surprised at the knowledge of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse forty seven, how this plays out. It's it's rather interesting. Verse 47, and Jesus said, and Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Wow. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him and said, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. That's where I saw you. Now, when you, when you think of this, he was surprised at the knowledge that Christ had for him. He said, you're an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel's going, how do, you, how do you even know this? See, Nathaniel immediately knew that this individual who he's confronted with here has got to be more than just a mere man. Why? Because he knows me. He knows what I was doing. He saw me under the fig tree. And this is, we don't understand this in our English context, but it's a very precious way of the Lord Jesus saying that, you know what, I know everything about you and what you've been thinking about. I know everything that you've been meditating about. I know how you've been searching for the Messiah. I know it all. I know you. John Calvin of the Reformation, he wrote this in one of his commentaries on John 1. He said, when we're not even thinking of Christ, we are continually observed by him. Think about that. When, when Christ isn't even in our mind, he is still observing us. So you don't think he knows what you're doing? He sees you every day of the week, every hour of the day, every minute of the hour. He sees you in the dark. When no one else sees you, he sees you, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're studying, whatever is captivating your thoughts. He knows the heart 
behind all that veneer that we put out for everybody to see. He knows people that are hurting and trying to act like they're not hurting. He knows all about us. He knows people who are fearful and trying to act like they're not filled with fear. See, Jesus knew him. And Nathaniel knew immediately that he knew him. Wouldn't that be an overwhelming <laughs> moment in time if you met someone whom you came to understand that knows everything about you? See, that made him <clears throat> strong in his confession. What he says, he says, the Son of God. <clears throat> he said, Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Very strong confession. The King of Israel. Remember when Jesus was going into Jerusalem. John 12, 13 says, So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And then the last thing here, he, he was strengthened by the words of Christ. Verse 50 to 51, Jesus answered him. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? <laughs> well, you know what? You're going to see greater things than that, my friend. In verse 51, he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. That word there is, is kind of an interesting thing. It's, a, it's most assuredly, truly, truly. <clears throat> it's Aramaic double amen, you could say. It occurs 25 times in John. In other words, this is pretty important, what I'm going to say to you. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We're going to get in a little bit to that next week. But it's, it's interesting to me that those words strengthened Nathaniel in a way that a lot of words wouldn't. And it's dealing with Jacob's dream back in Genesis 28 of that ladder going up to heaven. And remember, he saw the Lord God in the heaven at the top and on the ladder angels were ascending and descending, going up and down the ladder. <clears throat> and what does he tell Nathaniel here? He's basically saying, I'm the ladder <laughs> because the angels are going on me. I am the ladder, Nathaniel. I am the Savior of the world. I am the Messiah. I am the light, way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And his faith was strengthened by those words. Father, we thank you for these examples <clears throat> in the Gospel of John of, of men who came to Christ and, and some that Christ found out. And Lord, I'm sure that we can fit our own personalities, our own selves into one of those groups, those four groups somewhere along the way. And Lord, if we could go around the room and share our testimony one with another, we would find out that there are multiple ways that people come to Christ. Through different people's testimonies, through maybe audio or video presentations of the gospel, through hearing sermons, or through talking with another believer. There's so many different ways and yet, Lord, you say you're the only way. 
You're the only way. There's a lot of different methods, but there's only one true path to heaven, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If we are going to give up this life one day, the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. We will be ushered into eternity. The only thing that's going to matter in eternity is what did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you follow him? Did you yield your life to him? Did you give up your will for his will? Did you live faithfully for his cause while you were here on earth? Did you trust him as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins? Trust in Christ is exclusive. He doesn't take any ride-alongs. There's there's nowhere where Jesus says, well, you can trust in me and then also this. No. It's a very exclusive belief in Christ. And he's very clear that if you're going to follow him, it's going to cost you everything that you have. And yet he already paid the price for it. Amazing. I would challenge you here today if you haven't put your faith, your trust in Christ. Don't get caught up. Don't let the enemy confuse you with the idea that somehow if you become a Christian, you're going to have to give up things and do all this stuff that you don't want to do. No, that's not true. If God transforms your heart, He transforms your desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart when those desires are founded in His will. He wants you to come to Him. He wants you to put your faith and trust in Him. And maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, well, I don't understand at all. You don't have to. The one thing you do have to understand is that there's no way you're going to get to heaven by yourself <laughs> because you're a sinner, just like we're all sinners. And you have to cry out to God for His mercy, for His grace through Christ, His gift to you. All you have to do is reach out and take it. Say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to trust in you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Give me the faith to believe in you today. He'll do that if you pray that prayer from a sincere heart. And for believers here today, I pray that we would be encouraged by the different people that Jesus uses to draw men to himself. Father, we don't have to follow a certain methodology or use a certain track or say certain words. We have to just live for Christ and love people and desire to share boldly the gospel of Christ and you'll do the rest of the work. You change the hearts. We don't. And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to that task as we leave here today that we would recognize we live in a lost and dying world and they desperately need to hear, they need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out and and proclaimed before them. So, Father, we pray that you would just bless our time of fellowship across the way as well and bless the food for our bodies. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with song.